Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Kevin Kenny on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Peaceful Kingdom Lost, The Paxton Boys, and the Destruction of William Penn's Holy Experiment. William Penn was a Quaker, as you probably know, and he went to the New World in order to create a kind of religious utopia, one in which the Europeans would get along with one another, and of course with the Native Americans who were there. It didn't turn out that way, as Kevin shows in this book, and it's a very interesting story of ideals running up against reality, because it was actually really hard to do what William Penn and the Quakers wanted to do in 18th century Pennsylvania. There were many, many conflicting interests. Anyway, I enjoyed talking to Kevin today, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Marshall. Good morning. How are you today? I am well, thank you. Good, and you are in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, is that correct? Boston, Massachusetts, yes. That's right. Are you mourning the death of Edward Kennedy today? Well, it's a huge event here. I, um, I bet it is, yeah. I bet it ongoing. is. Ongoing, yeah. So you're at BC. Is there anything special going on there? Uh, nothing planned yet because we're not in session yet. We don't we don't oh. really uh, open up in the, in the northeast or at least in Boston until actually after Labor Day. <laughs> oh, is that right? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, sh- I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Kevin uh, Kenny right now, uh, who's in Boston and teaches at Boston College, and we'll be discussing his terrific new book, Peaceable Kingdom Lost, The Paxton Boys, and the Destruction of William Penn's Holy Experiment. Uh, as all of you know who listen to New Books in History, I've read this book, and as I told Kevin in the pre-interview, it's a terrific book. It's extraordinarily well-researched. It's uh, very well-written. Uh, it's quite a page-turner, and it's also really sad <laughs> because, as Kevin, I'm sure, will tell you, uh, it really is a, ter- it's a terrific, uh, a terrific in, um, example of uh, good intentions gone awry, uh, kind of running into circumstances and breaking up on the rocky shoals of, I guess, what I'd call human nature. But in any event, Kevin, let me uh, ask you to begin the interview by just saying a, a few words about yourself, where you're from, where you went to school, and that kind of thing. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm a native of Dublin, uh, um, raised in Dublin, educated in Scotland as an undergraduate at the University of Edinburgh, and then I moved over, came to the United States actually as an undergraduate for a year, got very interested in American history, and um, then decided to do the PhD uh, in American history. It made, made most sense to come back to the United States, obviously, to do that, um, and I took the PhD at uh, Columbia University. Uh, studying uh, American history. Uh, Jim Shenton was the historian of immigration. Eric Foner, uh, the great historian of the 19th century and the Civil War. Barbara Fields, um, those faculty had uh, a formative uh, influence on my training. And um, and at, at that point, did you? Uh, how did you get to BC? 
I got to BC by by traveling 2,000 miles south. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My first job was at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh So I was trained in American labor and immigration history, and I had a position as assistant professor in uh, in that field at the University of Texas for uh, five years. The position opened up at uh, Boston College, which was... uh, uh, quite attractive to me, a more senior position. So I, I, uh, I uh, took a circuitous route from uh, from New York to Boston and uh-huh. back. Uh-huh. I, I see. So you wrote a number of books prior to this one. Maybe you could say a few words about those. Yeah, uh, the first book I wrote was called Making Sense of the Molly Maguires, and that was a history of um, immigrant. Uh, workers in the Pennsylvania anthracite fields during the the period of Civil War and Reconstruction. Um, Another tragic story uh, in in many respects was the story of uh, 20 uh, young um, immigrant workers who were actually executed. Uh, They had been uh, convicted of a series of uh, murders or assassinations going back uh, through the 1870s and the 1860s, and they were thought to have been members of a secret society called the Molly Maguires. Um, now, I know a fair bit about uh, Irish uh, history as well as American history, and it was a way of bringing those two together, because what mm-hmm. I saw happening in, in Pennsylvania was... Um, of sort of a rare transatlantic outgrowth of a form of popular protest that I recognized from the Irish countryside mm-hmm. that ended up being transplanted uh, into, of all places, the heartland of the American Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. So it was an odd sort of juxtaposition of uh, old world popular protest and uh, new world uh, industrial conditions and um, that was the story of the, the Molly Maguire. So that was the first book I wrote um, that was followed by a more general history uh, of the American Irish uh, from 1700 to the present. Uh, that's a, a sort of a, a narrative survey book uh, that's, that's used in uh, immigration history courses. Um, I also edited a book on Ireland and the British Empire uh, in the um, Oxford uh, series, mm-hmm. the, history, the general history of the British Empire, which was which was interesting. Um, so mo- most of the work I've done has um, um, sort of bridged an Atlantic divide and ha- has tr- tried to deal with both sides of the Atlantic simultaneously. The New book, uh, less so, although there are some Irish antecedents and there are Ulster Presbyterians in particular at the heart of the story. I think it is, in the end, a very American story mm-hmm. and, and, and the um, European origins of, of the story I tell are actually less important than the Native American history. And mm-hmm. then, the, the of course, it's a story also about uh, British imperial history, early British imperial history, and the struggle for mastery between England and France mm-hmm. over North America. But very, very much a story that unfolds on on this side mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. of the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. Let me ask you this: How did you come to write the book? How did you um, shift from, let's say, the Molly Maguires or these more general studies to this particular topic, the Paxton Boys? How did you discover them, or how did you decide that that would be a good treatment for a or a good subject for a monograph? 
Well, in, in, in a couple of ways. Um, the, the first is that after I'd written the history of the Mollen Maguires, which is a, you know, a micro history, um, in the sense that it's a very detailed study of the anthracite region of Pennsylvania, but it's set in a broad Atlantic context because it takes in the, the Irish antecedents. Um, after I'd written that, I thought for a while of writing if you like, a prehistory of these popular protest movements that would start in the mid-18th century, take the story through groups like the Regulators, the Whiskey Rebels, mm-hmm. and, and then on into um, various uh, gangs and secret societies that emerged among immigrant workers in the antebellum period. Um, I thought of doing that for a long time. I was going to call it Midnight Legislators. But, but, <laughs> uh, a, a, a title I still want to use, at least for an article, if not for a book. I was uh, going to say, that's definitely uh, worth hanging on to. Yeah, the title, the title alone was, was driving it. Uh, that's a term that the authorities used in the countryside to describe the nocturnal activities of the mm-hmm. secret societies. They went out after dark. They often wore disguise, which, of course, is how the Molly Maguires themselves got their name. Um, so I looked into that for a while. I found, actually, that trying to collapse the 18th century and the 19th century into the same story um, wasn't all that helpful because the differences between the periods were too great. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the essential difference is that in the 18th century um popular protest tended to be much more open and legitimate. Mm-hmm. In the 19th century, as a generalization, it tends to be driven underground, mm-hmm. becomes more secret, it becomes more violent. So um, I became interested then in the 18th century on its own terms. Um, I thought about the Paxton Boys, which we'll discuss this morning, the regulators in the Carolinas, the Whiskey Rebels. Um, thought about doing all of them together, but then became just uh, intrigued by the one-story of the Paxton Boys, but putting it in a different context, and that was a context that went back in time. Uh, so to tell the story of the Paxton Boys, I go back all the way to the beginning of uh, Pennsylvania with William Penn, and I take the story through the American Revolution. So it's mm-hmm. actually uh, a book that covers a century of history uh, rather than, if you like, an ocean of space. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, th- so that's that's the the first thing that uh, the way I got interested. The other is that I have a particular interest in trying to um, write history that will um, be read outside as well as inside universities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I've accomplished that with the Molly Maguire book and with this uh Peaceable Kingdom Lost, um, and so I like to write history in such a way that I am analyzing the past, uh, but in a way that is accessible to as many readers as possible. Uh, a very effective way of doing that for me is to find uh, stories, mm-hmm. uh, and stories about change over time, mm-hmm. uh, stories often that have inherent drama or tragedy, I used to like to say of the Molly Maguires, um, that only the most talented historian could kill off all of the inherent drama <laughs> in the story. You'd have to you'd have to try really hard to tell a bad story about the Molly Maguires. Um, and again, I I believe that you can I, I believe that telling uh, engaging human stories of change over time. Um, can also be a way of explaining very important things about the past. So I'm on the lookout for stories that I can tell. Now, often these are 
discrete and particular stories. At the heart of the new book is um, an Indian massacre, mm-hmm. uh, but to make sense of the origin, significance, and impact of that event, then I, I place it in successively broader um, chronological and uh, spatial contexts. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really the type of history I like to write. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you've done it wonderfully here. I know it's. Uh, I've tried my hand at it a little bit, and I failed utterly. Uh, but I, I, cer- I certainly, I certainly respect people that, that can do it. And obviously, this entire program is about disseminating um, knowledge about books like yours, in the hopes that people will read serious history. And this is very serious and very interesting history. I'm always reminded of what they said in the Renaissance about. Uh, telling anyone anything, and that is that you should please and instruct simultaneously. But it's it's hard please to keep both. Please yeah. and instruct. Those, <laughs> yeah, are, yeah. Those, are, those are hard balls to keep in the air simultaneously. But uh, I, li- I like what you said about starting at the beginning because uh, um, I- I'm not an American historian, and I'm uh, I-, I will uh, admit to you that I don't know as much as I should about all this stuff. But well, why don't we begin at the beginning and you tell us about William Penn and how he and his family got a hold of Pennsylvania. Yes, and that's a, an extraordinary story uh, in itself. Um, w- William Penn is, uh, I think, uh, emerges as one of the more laudable and attractive uh, figures in the book. There, there aren't that many. <laughs> Benjamin Franklin <laughs> does, does rather well too. Um, uh, several of the Native American leaders do. Uh, Penn, Penn is a Quaker. Uh, he is a, a sincere and uh, committed uh, Quaker. Uh, he believes that he can put into practice uh, an ideal, harmonious society, which he calls his peaceable kingdom. And, of course, the book is called Peaceable Kingdom Lost. Um, the, pe- the peaceable kingdom would be uh, a society in which um, Europeans of many different backgrounds and the Native American inhabitants of Pennsylvania could live together in uh, harmony. And, and this was Penn's ideal. Now, it's it's an attractive uh, ideal, to some extent a successful one. Um, at the same time, we need to realize the colonial uh, foundations of uh, what Penn was doing uh, in order to, to understand maybe some of the contradictions, maybe why it, it couldn't fully work in the end. Uh, the, first, the first thing to understand is that there would have been no Pennsylvania if the king hadn't given William Penn 29 million acres of land uh, to play around with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, we have to pause <laughs> at that and re- realize what that means. It makes him the largest individual landlord in the British Empire. Uh, it also We also realize, of course, from our perspective, that there were people um, living on that land. Um, who used it uh, in particular ways uh, that were central to their culture, who they owned it in particular ways that are very different from English law, uh, but they were, of course, not consulted uh, uh, as part of this deal. Now, Penn stands out because he is genuinely interested in the um, culture of the different Native American or Indian groups who live there. He treats them as individual sovereign entities, uh, he doesn't lump all Indians into the same category. That comes mm-hmm. later in American history. Uh, he makes uh, treaties with uh, the groups individually, um, and he purchases uh, land from them. In other words, he compensates them for the uh, land on which they live, which he desires to own in an absolute uh, and English uh, 
legal sense. Um, so again, all of that is is um, uh, commendable and unusual by the standards of the time. Uh, at the same time, we, we need to qualify it a little bit in realizing that uh, Penn had a fair degree of self-interest in purchasing the land fairly and above board because in doing so he could clear the land of previous titles and encumbrances and sell it to settlers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a mixture of self-interest and altruism. And altru- altruism, of course, often is self-interest <laughs> um, uh, that, that we encounter here. But the, the important thing with Tan is that um, he respects the Indians. He is genuinely interested in them. He makes treaties with them. For the most part, they revere him. And he sets up a land system whereby um, all land must be bought and sold uh, through the Penn family dealing with the Indians, not by individual settlers who are uh, either, uh, who are attempting to purchase land uh, outside that system. Mm-hmm. Now that that's his goal. That's his ideal for various reasons that we'll discuss at greater length. It, it doesn't work, and perhaps can, perhaps can't work. What was his idea to populate this uh, land with um, European settlers? Yes, uh, in a well-regulated way. Uh, and uh, so, so uh, he and Benjamin Franklin and others use a significant term, uh, "little commonwealth." is the term they use, and that is to describe the harmonious coexistence of European settlers and Indians. The Indians will, will remain on their, on their own land in their little commonwealth among us. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a phrase that, uh, that, that's used at the time. Um, he uh, not only wants but needs European settlers to come uh, because they will purchase the land from him and he will begin to recoup the expenses involved in setting up his colony. Penn is always uh, chronically in debt. He actually goes into a debtor's prison at one point. Um, So uh, he has a well-regulated vision of how that should be done. Uh, But, of course, uh, even the Quaker settlers, when they come, do not want to settle in little nucleated English villages around the town of Philadelphia. They want to move a little further west and get on the best, most fertile land. Mm -hmm. And then when um, settlers begin to arrive from the northern Irish province of Ulster, they just bypass Penn and his system altogether, and they move west to what was then the frontier. It was referred to as the frontier, and that's in the region of... uh, Lancaster and present-day Harrisburg in the Susquehanna Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is the western frontier of settlement almost up to the revolution, up to the 1760s. And basically, settlers just go straight out there and claim the land by what they call tomahawk right. Uh, <laughs> uh, you, you take a tomahawk and you carve, you carve your initials or your symbol into a tree and it's yours. I see. Uh, now, in total disregard of what Penn wants and in total disregard of the Indians who live there. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I see. Um, so there, there was a third group here as well, the Germans that he invited. Maybe you could talk a little bit yeah, about them. Well, uh, uh, most uh, commentators that we read in the 18th century compare, compare the Germans and the so-called Scotch-Irish or Scots-Irish. That's the uh, Irish of Ulster, Scottish Presbyterian background who mm-hmm. came from Ulster to Pennsylvania. Um, they compare them and uh, invariably the... Um, Scots-Irish come out uh, adversely from the comparison. The Germans come out well. 
Uh, broadly speaking, uh, the Germans settle on Lancaster Plain, uh, which in, is between Philadelphia and current-day Lancaster, some of the most fertile land in America, some of the most fertile land in Earth, on Earth. Um, mm-hmm. uh, they uh, arrive with sufficient uh, resources and sufficient agricultural skill to be able to do that, mm-hmm. so they can purchase the land and they can set up as... Uh, moderate to large-scale farmers. As you move west uh, out of the Lancaster Plain, uh, and you can see it even today if you drive. I was down there in a rental car just a couple of months ago and confirming all the things I knew uh, from history 250 <laughs> years ago. As you drive towards the river, you begin to drive uphill into hill country. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, where, that's where travel begins. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the land is, is much poorer, uh, it's an uphill gradient, uh, it's more densely wooded and eventually forested, and then you move into mountainous territory. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's in that region that the Ulster uh, Scots tend to settle without uh, a permit. Uh, they settle there as squatters whenever they can. Uh, they don't have to pay rents, they don't have to purchase the land. They, they're um, immediately in conflict with the uh, Indians. They are on the frontier. And the, of course, the, the dynamic between the two is fascinating because uh, the um, Scots-Irish and the squatters borrow Native American agricultural techniques, what we would call slash and burn, mm-hmm. or girdling trees rather than cutting them down, mm-hmm. you know, where you remove a strip of bark, mm-hmm. uh, a strip of bark to interrupt the sap flow, and the tree dies uh, so that it allows sufficient sunlight in that you can grow crops just for a season. Mm-hmm. And then you move on. They also wear moccasins. They also put, put uh, tar in their hair and, and wear beaver skin hats and everything. And, and, and so from the perspective of uh, the civilized Quakers in the East, uh, they looked like what? They looked like Indians, mm-hmm. and, uh, which is absolutely uh, infuriating to them to ever be compared uh, mm-hmm. to the group that they're, they're in conflict with. Um, Benjamin Franklin, in a famous phrase in his pamphlet against the Paxton Boys, ends up calling them Christian white savages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so that's the type of cultural exchange we're, 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 uh, we're dealing with. Um, they feel also at, at, out in the West that the, the Eastern elite looks down on them, mm-hmm. uh, much like they had felt in Ireland that the Anglican elite had looked down on them. They, they see themselves and really are a buffer between um, an oppressed group. It's Catholic in Ireland. It's uh, well, oppressed isn't the best word, but between an upper and a lower group, mm-hmm. uh, you have an Anglican elite in Ireland. You have a Quaker elite in Pennsylvania. You have a buffer group of these Scots-Irish frontiersmen uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Below them. Uh, they're keeping down Catholics in Ireland, they're mm-hmm. keeping down Indians in Pennsylvania. It's a, it's a remarkable sort of embattled, restless, mobile, aggressive culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Why? Let me ask a quick question. Were most yeah. of the uh, Germans who came, were they Mennonites or were they Lutherans or were they both? Both. Uh, couldn't give you exact figures mm-hmm. off the top of my head that they're in the book. Um, yeah, I can't uh, remember either. Uh, can't come through. Uh, the, they wouldn't mostly have been Mennonites. Yeah. The, uh, there were Amish, there were Mennonites, uh, there were Lutherans. Um, they, it's funny, there isn't really a pan-German identity mm-hmm. uh, be, because they, 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 uh, not only do, do they belong to different 
religions and uh, come from different regions and speak uh, different dialects, they, they often want to be left alone. Mm-hmm. And, and by definition, uh, some of the Mennonite and uh, Amish groups are self-contained and want no interaction even mm-hmm. with other Germans. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the actual breakdown, I don't have. Uh, yeah, I just, I just was wondering, and the reason, yeah. reason I ask is we have um, Mennonite and Amish communities uh, out here in Iowa around yeah, um, yeah. around Iowa City, and uh, we visit them sometimes, and I just was kind of interested. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, uh, they're the best, the Mennonites and Amish would be the best known of the Germans in, 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 in uh, Lancaster, but not necessarily the yeah. most numerous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know that Germantown figures prominently in the book. And yes. I think yes. most people know about Germantown these days because it's an extraordinarily large mall. I don't know if you've ever uh, yes, yeah, yeah. gigantic uh, mall that everybody from Philadelphia goes to. Uh, the, uh, the, so um, then, then the, uh, the Ulstermen, I don't know if they were called Ulstermen at the time, but the, uh, the folks from Ulster, yeah. why, why, did they, why did they come over? How were they convinced to come over to this rough country? Well, they came over for the same reason that their own ancestors had come into the north of Ireland from Scotland, and that was uh, in hopes of securing land uh, that, that they could call their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's all about land. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, in, in Ulster, they never properly secured that goal because they tended to be tenant farmers rather than landowners. Uh, one way of... Uh, Owning land in a, in a brutally direct way is, is, is just to expropriate it, mm-hmm. to take it away from uh, its native inhabitants. And they did that and, and set up claims and then might have essentially legalized those claims. It's a chaotic place. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a, there's a phrase in the book um, where the generation before the Paxton Boys strike, uh, a group of Ulster squatters uh, try to take over the land on which the same Conestoga Indians are uh, living under the protection of the Penn family, and they say that they have, uh, say that it is wrong uh, that um, land be left idle when it's needed by hungry Christians. Yeah, yeah. So, so from their point of view, land that is not being put to the same type of productive use that mm-hmm. they could put it in order to feed themselves, grow crops, perhaps uh, produce a small ca- cash crop or two. Uh, is idle. It's uncultivated land is idle. Mm-hmm. Uh, wh- whoever lays claim to that land um, and can pr- produce value out of the land by working the land uh, is justified uh, in uh, owning that land as property. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from their point of view, the, the land is not used. The, 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 it is populated by heathens who are, who, who are putting it to no productive use and therefore have no... Uh, uh, claim to it, mm-hmm. so that it should just be taken over. Now, from the point of view of the Penn family, uh, the, the land ultimately belongs to, to the Penn family because they're sim- simultaneously uh, landlords and proprietors of, of the province. From the point of view of the most of the Indians, the, the very concept of land ownership as absolute private property is nonsensical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because so, I know that they, it's a they, very tangled uh, situation. <laughs> yeah, you said that the Penn, the, the Penn family. Uh, it's it's one of the things you say in the book, and this is sort of interesting, is that the, uh, the 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 Indians sell the same piece of land several times. Yeah, and the and the Pens go along with that. It's, yeah. I, I think it, I think it's very revealing. It's we I mean we don't know for certain, but it, all, all the signs are that um, land was held as a tribal trust 
uh, it wasn't held in individual allotments, um, that the notion of the English notion of absolute land ownership, which could be forfeited or alienated in return for land or goods, mm-hmm. is not one that makes sense. Uh, to most Indians, they're not they're not interested in land as property as a source of revenue. Uh, they're interested in land as um, you know that which sustains life, mm-hmm. and, and and there's a fair amount of reverence for the land and what the land contains in terms mm-hmm. of its crops and animals. Now, the Penn family will purchase land from the. Uh, Indians, the Iroquois, who we'll talk about, I'm sure, are major players mm-hmm. in this. Uh, any such purchase has to be uh, ratified by by the tribe or nation in council. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it has to be formally ratified in order to be binding. But it's still the the idea of um, transferring absolute title uh, over land in this way is, is still a very odd one for for the Indians and. Um, one clear sign we have of this is on, uh, uh, on multiple occasions they will sell a piece of land and then they will approach the Penn family half a generation or a generation later and say, you know what, we're going to sell you that piece of land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, do, I document in the book some cases <laughs> where the same piece of land is sold over and over again and the Penn family will go along with this. Yeah. And if yeah. you read the sources, there will be a gentle admonition which will be, well, look, you know, your forefathers did sign a deed yeah. giving us this land in 1737 or 1686, but we'll give you 500 uh, uh, pounds again, mm-hmm. and uh, the land is ours again, but really it's ours. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, so. so there's a huge, huge cultural uh, yeah. uh, gulf there. Well, it's funny because I know that uh, <laughs> in the case of many universities, and the one I'm thinking about in particular is uh, I was uh, – there's a famous university uh, – in Cambridge, Massachusetts, you may have heard of that will that will occasionally or two actually, but one of them gives the city of Cambridge a big lump sum payment every, every year. Oh, no, right. Yeah. <laughs> so in a sense, Cambridge is selling them the land in which this famous university. Oh yeah, yeah, every yeah. year, yeah, yeah. Every, every year, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if they yeah. Do, and if they don't surrender that payment, I figure that these people yeah. at this famous university are um, <laughs> going to suffer. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. No, um, <laughs> So it's not uh, land. Land title is not something you want to investigate too closely. No, it, it, no, so, it may be it may be legal, but it's still fictitious. Yeah, that's, some, yeah, that's some exactly, basic sense. That's absolutely <laughs> right. So then, um, uh, the, the, one of the things I really liked about the book, and I think that readers will find most interesting, is the attention you pay not to lump the Indians into one category. Uh, and that is, you know, we have a, a we have a, a Native American historian here who who uh, beats that drum, so to say. Uh, um, uh, very, very often, and, and I really mm-hmm. liked how you mm-hmm. showed that the Indians themselves were not exactly, uh, they, they were neither peaceable with one another, nor did, <laughs> oh, yes, they, yes. Nor did they have yes. the same interests. So maybe you could talk a little about that. Yeah, and I think you, could, you, you had mentioned at the outset that in some ways this is a sad book. Uh, it's it's certainly a tragic book, and, and Native American history often is. I, I, I mean, I think part of the tragedy here is that by the end of the story, which is the American Revolution, uh, Americans are lumping all Indians into one category. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a, a grimly familiar category, which is that all Indians are the same. And to prefigure the 19th century uh, saying uh, that the only good Indian ultimately is a dead Indian, um, mm-hmm. it's very, very different from that at the beginning of the story and, and through much of the 18th century. And of course, it's the... Um, protagonists of the story 
themselves who tell us this. This is not an argument I need to impose on them or, or even sort of ferret out of the sources. It's coming through loud and clear. Uh, William Penn tweets the uh, different Indian groups, the Delawares, the Susquehannocks, the Iroquois, uh, as separate nations. He treats with them as separate nations. They regard themselves as separate nations. And then uh, clearly um, there are um, power relations uh, between them uh, such that the Iroquois, who are based up in um, present-day uh, Upper New York State, um, are the major players uh, throughout the 18th century. They are power brokers between the English and the French. And the smaller um, Indian tribes in Pennsylvania, the Delawares were the most important, the Susquehannocks were once important, and the Conestogas were their last remnant. Um, they and other smaller groups are actually tributaries to the Iroquois. Now, to be a tributary means it's a, in a basic um, sense that they pay tribute to their masters. Mm-hmm. And that could be in the form of deer skins or crops or a, a token uh, symbol of some sort. Um, but the relationship goes beyond that because the fundamental uh, feature of the tributary relationship is that the subordinate tribe or nation uh, lacks the power to do two essential things. Uh, one is to make war and the other is to transact in land. Mm-hmm. So anything involving uh, war or landed property must be mediated uh, for that group by the Iroquois, which is why at all the treaties in the 18th century you will see Iroquois representatives. So when the small, when the Delawares or the Conestogas are um, engaged in financial or political business with uh, the government in Philadelphia, the Iroquois are there to, to monitor the proceedings. Uh, all the big decisions are taken with the Iroquois. Sometimes, the, or frequently I should say, the uh, smaller Indian groups are not consulted uh, about their fate. Um, yeah. And ultimately, the, the Iroquois are, are major um, significant players in, in the imperial history of, of North America in the 18th century. Uh, you, you have the British and the French contending for mastery. Uh, you have the Iroquois mediating quite successfully between them. Um, the, the Iroquois stay neutral during the French and Indian War, but lean heavily towards the British. Uh, during the American Revolution, four of the six nations um, side with the British. Uh, which is the only uh, side they could have taken because they were much more afraid of the Americans than the British with good reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe we'll get back to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, I think the whole topic of uh, Indian, sort of um, European Indian uh, diplomacy is a fascinating one, and a lot is being done on it now. We just uh, um, hired a fellow, Tom Mitterod is his name, and he uh, has just he's just completed a book on mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. On, on basically Indian diplomacy. Uh, and, yeah, and, and, yeah. and the sources are fascinating, and, and because I think a lot of 19th century, early 20th century American historians looked at this, and when they saw Indian, they thought of one thing. They didn't pay attention to the richness of the sources. It was always there. This is what Tom says. Yeah. It was always yeah. there that they were treating them very differently, uh, but historians just didn't see it. And, and yeah, I, well, I find that process fascinating. Yeah. Well, certainly the, the sources available to me were very rich. Uh, and actually, one of the ironies in moving back into the 18th century from the 19th, where I began, uh, is I discovered more and more uh, source material. <laughs> uh, partly because the protagonists, the Paxton boys, the Presbyterians, being Protestant, tended to write things down. Yeah. Um, par- 
and were literate, highly literate, and articulate, partly because the colonial government kept such extensive records of the treaties. Now, the records are problematic, and um, it, I, I could certainly offer a, an auto-critique of, of my own uh, usage of them, but it's a, it's a calculated decision. And uh, In other words, what you have in the treaty records are the are sources that were collected in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So the, the state governments brought them together in the 19th century. What they brought together were transcriptions uh, written down in the 18th century mm-hmm. in English of translations mm-hmm. made at the time of conference uh, proceedings. So you, you have collections of transcriptions of translations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you're at three or four levels removed mm-hmm. from uh, the Indian voice. You do have Indian voices, uh, but you have to understand that these were diplomatic spokesmen who, who, to begin with, spoke in a certain ritual form uh, that was then uh, translated. The translation was transcribed, uh, and I'm sure distorted in transcription, uh, sometimes deliberately, and then eventually collected in the 19th century. So, so it's a, a third or fourth hand account. And now, I guess when I was younger and when I was doing the Molly Maguire book, I, uh, and maybe a little more skeptical than I needed to be, I would have said, well, this, those sources are too uh, too compromised, but they're not. <laughs> they're the only sources we have. Yeah. Um, and if you read them carefully, you just learn so much um, about Indian conceptions of land and culture and Quaker conceptions of Indians and, and re- reaction or relations between the different Indian groups. They're incredibly rich. Yeah. Uh, I think, that, I think uh, there's really a lot to be done with them. I do. I know that I worked yeah. with, a, I worked with a, a, a kind of document that was or a kind of source in my first book that was largely dismissed by 19th century historians, and these were travel accounts. These are people who oh, yeah, gone yeah, from yeah. Western Europe to Muscovy or to 16th and 17th yeah, yeah. century Russia. And in the 19th century, people said, well, you know, these guys didn't know what they were talking about, and they yeah, were translated, yeah, yeah. and they were, various, they were corrupted in various ways, and so on, you know, but, I, but you know, if you look at them carefully, though, and compare them, compare different, you, yeah, know, you can actually, yeah. you can actually uh, wring a lot of what I think is true information out of them, and, and there's a, really a lot being done with that now, and um, there's certainly a lot thought, of it in your book, yeah. so. I, 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 I think so, and I, I mean, I th- you know, we, we always read sources critically when we do yeah. read history, so, so they have to be read in a certain way. The other thing I would say in that struck me most in writing the book and certainly stands out in the way I've written the book um, is if you think of the Iroquois and the other Indians, especially the Iroquois, as being engaged in the same fundamental uh, struggle or game over land and power mm-hmm. as uh, the Penn family, the Quakers, the French, the, the, the British imperial government, all of, all of them are interacting on the same terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the net result of that approach is to de-exotifize yeah. um, the Indians. Now, it could be that an ethnologist would, would look at my work and say, no, I've gone too far in that respect. Mm-hmm. But, but in my book, the Indians are, are just as human as everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's how they come through loud and clear to me. And, mm-hmm. You know, this was a new field for me, a new century for me. Uh, but this is what came out of the sources for me is, is uh, that they were all engaged in, in, in a common struggle. And it's a sort of a... Uh, the net effect, as I say, is to de-exoticize. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and I think that's, that on balance is a good thing and a powerful insight. Certainly for me, it was, it was one of the things I learned most from, from mm-hmm. the project. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I know that when you were talking about the relationship between the Iroquois and, the, and these other Indian groups and the um, these kinds of, the uh, oh, what one call it, uh, 
relation of, of patron to client, or that's not the right term, but uh, these sorts of relations of suzerainty. I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking that the uh, until pretty recently, and I mean pretty recently, the last few hundred years, I believe that the king of England was also the king of France. I don't remember very well, but I'm pretty yeah, sure yeah. that for a very long <laughs> time, the king yeah. of England claimed to be the king of France. That's right. That's and right. He, he, did, he or she didn't yeah. really have a yeah. good, really couldn't uh, enforce that claim. Very <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, but they were yeah. they were still claiming it, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and enfor- enforcing the claim is the key thing. There's, yeah. there's, there's, there's a large element of bluff in, in what the Iroquois are doing, uh-huh. but they're they're brilliant diplomatists, and yeah. they do back it up with the, the threat of military force. Yeah, exactly. So it's. Uh, I, uh, I, I like this idea of de- exoticizing. I can't say yeah, it very well, yeah. but I think it's terrific. I think you should read an article about it or something. <laughs> maybe, I, maybe. I'm yeah, all for it. Yeah. Really so, so let's get to how, how it. Um, let's get to the sad part about how it all fell apart. And, and did it begin to fall apart during the um, the the war, which has many names? That is the American. Yeah. Was it the the? It's the French Indian War here, and then it's the Great War for Empire. Some places and other places. Yeah, but, the, I think um, it's the Seven Years' War. I can't remember. The Seven Years' War, yeah. or, or, or the First World, the First World first War, World War uh, whatever we call this <laughs> yeah. thing that occurred yeah. in the sort of 1750s. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it it fell apart then. It began to fall ba- fall apart earlier. I mean, you could say it, 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 the cracks were evident even during Penn's lifetime, mm-hmm. uh, for the reasons we discussed earlier. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's this unstable mixture of benevolence and colonialism, altruism, and self-interest. Um, now, Penn's uh, children are, I guess, a bad lot. Uh, you. It, maybe it just comes from inheriting 29 million acres. <laughs> um, I mean, what, what can one expect? But Tom, yeah. uh, he has three sons uh, who eventually inherit Pennsylvania. Um, the eldest of them, John the American, because he was born in Philadelphia during one of his father's two visits. Uh, he dies, and Thomas Penn becomes the um, principal proprietor and governor of the province from the 1730s right through until 1775. Um, He wants to do what his father never managed to do, which is to make money out of the province. Uh, He does so as an absentee landlord, um, and he quickly reverts from Quakerism to Anglicanism, which which means that the religious foundation of the the peaceable kingdom or the humane vision is gone. And, mm-hmm. you know, a very clear sign, sign of this is that one well-known notorious incident I discuss early in the book of the walking purchase oh, in, yeah, right, yeah, in 1737. Ahead, yeah. so, so basically uh, Penn and his brother uh, unearth a document that goes back 50 years, and they say to the Delawares living along the Delaware River, said, well, look, um, our father purchased this land for you, from you. He gave you the money. Uh, but the transaction was never completed. The measure of the land is uh, how much a man can walk in a day and a half, Mm -hmm. and the walk was never made, uh, so we need to survey the land. Well, the Delawares are mystified because they know exactly how much a man can walk in a day and a half. (laughs) He can walk uh, from here to to a a certain creek uh, Mm -hmm. uh, so many miles distant. But they agree to... um, have the walk conducted anyway uh, under duress, and the pens uh, send out a team of relay runners <laughs> uh, to conduct the walk, and they cover circumnavigated territory the size of Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, so now the, the Delawares who live there have to leave. Uh, it takes five years to get them out of there, but who orchestrates their departure? The Iroquois. 
Mm-hmm. The Iroquois are now allies with Philadelphia. The Delawares get squeezed out. The Delawares move west of the Susquehanna River. Um, all sorts of interesting things are happening out there, uh, not least including George Washington's uh, efforts on behalf of the Ohio Company to uh, secure land out in what is now western Pennsylvania and Ohio. Uh, they come into conflict with the French in the region of Fort Duquesne, which mm-hmm. becomes Fort uh, Pitt, Pittsburgh. Um, and the seeds of the French and Indian War really uh, germinate there. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the French and Indian War, the um, Western Delaware Indians, who haven't forgotten the walking purchase, um, really side with the French as the lesser of two evils. Uh, they'd rather there was no war. <laughs> it's not their war. It's a war between two uh, um, alien powers, but the least threatening of those powers is the French. Uh, mainly because the French don't have the manpower to, to actually, actually plant extensive settlements mm-hmm. in the interior. The British clearly do. Uh, so they side with the French. They launch um, devastating punitive raids back into uh, interior Pennsylvania uh, across the Susquehanna River. And what happens next is decisive because war has come to the Peaceable Kingdom. Uh, the Peaceable Kingdom is still sufficiently Quaker that it has no means of self-defense. Mm-hmm. Um, it has no militia. Uh, so uh, the first thing they have to do uh, with Benjamin Franklin, uh, no, actually he had done it, tried to do it a little earlier. Um, Franklin comes back into the story later. But the, the first thing they do is they set, set up a militia, a fighting force. Now, Quakers had been, uh, f- ever since the opening decade of the 18th century, they had been prepared to uh, vote funds in the assembly for what they euphemistically call the king's youth. Mm-hmm. In other words, that's a way of getting, of skirting the uh, question of pacifism and saying, okay, we, we, we'll uh, vote to provide funds to the king and he can use them for whatever he wants. In other words, if he if he uses them to defend us in a war, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, for the first time, the Peaceable Kingdom sets up its own fighting force, and Pennsylvanians will be taking up arms. Now, to take up arms as a Quaker is, from a strict pacifist point of view, in other words, from William Penn's point of view, it would have been anathema. Uh, there still are strict pacifists in Pennsylvania, most no- notably the Pemberton family, mm-hmm. uh, Israel Pemberton, um, who refused to go along with this. Uh, but the Quite majority of Quakers by the 1750s are no longer uh, strict pacifists um, under the pressure of attacks from uh, on the province for the first time. Uh, the province responds. It declares war on the Delaware Indians. It even provides scalp bounties for the capture uh, or killing of, of Indians. And you could say by... 1756, uh, at the very latest, the, the Peaceable Kingdom is no more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how do we get from there to the Paxton Boys? Well, the Paxton Boy uh, episode takes place in 1763, mm-hmm. now, which was a great turning point in American history. It's the beginning of the Revolutionary Era, and it is also, in terms of this local history, uh, a particular beginning to Pennsylvania's revolution, which we'll talk about. But uh, 1763 is the end of the uh, Seven Years' War, which is the global war of which the French and Indian War is a part. Mm -hmm. Um, 
the Peace of Paris is is signed in in, in 1763. Um, we often date the beginning of the revolutionary era to then because the British had to figure out ways of paying for the war. Mm-hmm. They had to uh, impose new taxes that were familiar, very familiar with the the, the, the Stamp Act and and mm-hmm. uh, all of that. Uh, they imposed uh, a Western barrier on uh, British settlement. They, in other words, they drew a proclamation line and said east of this is English territory, west of it is uh, American territory, and all, all of that outrages the type of people I described earlier who are living on the frontier in the mm-hmm. Susquehanna Valley. Now, the other thing that happens in 1763 is the largest Indian rebellion in colonial American history, and that is Pontiac's War. Mm-hmm. Um, and that originates up in the Great Lakes region, but quickly spreads down all the way down to uh, the Ohio Valley in Pennsylvania. And once again, Delaware and Shawnee Indians begin to cross the Susquehanna River and attack uh, Pennsylvania. On the front line, uh, of course, are, are the Ulster Scots, mm-hmm. the, the Presbyterians, the squatters, the, the wild man. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And from their perspective, uh, they are reliving the nightmare of the French and Indian War once again, um, and the government in Philadelphia, both the Quaker-dominated assembly and the Penn family, which controls the executive, are doing virtually nothing to uh, protect them, mm-hmm. because uh, Pennsylvania disbanded its militia in, in uh, 1758 once the Pennsylvania phase of the French and Indian War came to an end. Mm-hmm. Um, so what happens is the under pressure from the uh, frontiersmen, the Philadelphia government uh, authorizes the creation of a new provincial militia uh, for defensive purposes, uh, both east and west of the Susquehanna River. And the group in the uh, on both sides of the river in what is... Uh, Today, Harrisburg, it was at that point Harris's Ferry, uh, mm-hmm. where an Englishman named, named Harris uh, ran a, uh, a ferry across the river. Uh, in, that, in that particular region, uh, Harrisburg-Lancaster region, also the, the uh, area of Paxton Presbyterian Church, um, the militiamen are known as the uh, Paxton Rangers, P-A-X-T-A-N. NG, which is just another spelling for Paxton, the Paxton Rangers or the Paxton Boys. Mm-hmm. Um, their um, commander, though he doesn't fight in the field, he's quite elderly, but the man, the man in charge of raising them is the Reverend John Elder, uh, the fighting pastor of Paxton Presbyterian Church. He had fought during the French and Indian War. Um, my understanding uh, of what happens is that this particular frontier militia group, the Pakistan Rangers or Paxton Boys, um, which is uh, organized for strictly defensive purposes, mm-hmm. um, quickly exceeds its mandate mm-hmm. and la- launches uh, offensive uh, attacks um, um, on uh, usually on Delaware Indians living in Moravian settlements. That's their principal target. Mm-hmm. Uh, those attacks fail. Um, the, for, for complicated reasons, they're repulsed by by other Indians, and the Paxton boys turn around and they say, "Well, look, uh, there's this group of Indians, the Conestogas. Um, now, by this time, there are only 20 of them left, but they are a remnant of the Susquehannock Indians who were once very powerful in the region. They've been living 
on Conestoga Manor for uh, over 70 years. Uh, they, they were actually um, given land there by William Penn and, has, and have been living under uh, government protection. That's the protection of the Penn family ever since. Um, there's, and this is the target they choose. And, and, there, and I was going to say, there, and some of them are also Christians, aren't they? Uh, yes. Now, the, the 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 Indians they initially attacked were definitely Moravian uh, Indians, which, is, in other words, converted to Christianity yeah. by by Moravian missionaries. Yeah. It's un it's un there's no evidence that the Conestoga Indians were actually Christian. Okay. Right. I've seen it written down, but I found no evidence okay. that they had that they had uh, converted. But they were peaceful, um, absolutely peaceful, um, on very good relations with the Penn family. They revered uh, William Penn and his memory. They conveyed the same honorific title on his sons. Um, they, they lived on, under uh, government protection. There's immense uh, symbolic significance in what the Paxton boys do uh, because they choose to attack in broad daylight uh, a group of peaceful, non-belligerent Indians who live on government-owned land under government protection. Mm-hmm. Um, they killed the first six of them on December 14, 1763. About 50 Paxton boys ride down river. It's quite a ride, um, almost 40 miles. Uh, and they must have ridden through the night or, or broken their, their journey the day before. Uh, they attack Conestoga Indian Town. Only six uh, of the Indians are present. Uh, the other 14 are out selling brooms and baskets uh, that uh, they make and is one of their few sources of, uh, of a livelihood. Um, the authorities remove the remaining 14, uh, including the eight children, to nearby uh, Lancaster Workhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, two weeks later, the Paxton boys strike again. They break into Lancaster Workhouse, and in a matter of minutes, they, they slaughter the remaining 14 Indians. Again, it's government-owned property. It's broad daylight. Mm-hmm. Uh, plenty of evidence in the book to indicate that the authorities had some inkling of what was going to happen on both occasions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the ultimate symbolic significance of this, in addition to what I've just mentioned, is that essentially the Paxton boys are throwing down the gauntlet yeah. uh, to the government. They're saying all Indians are the same. Um, doesn't matter. We, we, we reject your distinction between enemy Indians and friendly Indians. Uh, they deserve to be annihilated. We've done it. Uh, they even claim the land as theirs by right of conquest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then they, they, they throw down the gauntlet and they say, well, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And uh, what do they do about it? Nothing. <laughs> Not, the, the Paxton boys are never investigated, arrested, prosecuted, tried. Nothing. And mm-hmm. So carte blanche uh, to like-minded frontier settlers on the front uh, in the west. It's um, open season on Indians. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And do did the, did the Quakers, uh, they, they mount no sort of effort to prosecute the Paxton boys? Or do, uh, or, or do they, for example... Um, do they do they seek help from London in this instance? Do they say, you know, could you come help us out with this? Yeah, they got, well, they did. Uh, they, uh, in, in a uh, in a manner of speaking, they, they seek help from London. They, they contacted the commander in chief uh, of British forces in North America and secured military reinforcements for the city of Philadelphia. And this is Gage at this time, is that right? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, later, even better known. Yes, um, much better known, right? In Boston. Yeah. Yes. So, so, <laughs> um, so, so, do the British come to the aid of uh, the uh, Quakers in, in Philadelphia? Uh, 
adequately uh, they sent a few detachments uh-huh. uh, da- da- down from New York. It was important that they do so because about a month after the two massacres that I've just described, uh, rumors arise in Philadelphia that the Paxton Boys, perhaps as many as 1,500 of them, are marching across the frozen uh, landscape of Lancaster Plains from from the Susquehanna Valley and are intent on uh, sacking the city of Philadelphia. Uh, mm-hmm. A number of Indians, about 140 Moravian Indians, have been removed to Philadelphia for their for their safety. Um, the Paxton Boys demand the uh, right to quote unquote inspect them. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, what an what an inspection might have consisted of, given what they've just done to the Conestoga Indians. Uh, doesn't bear thinking about. Uh, so they march on the city. Uh, probably about 300 of them arrive in the town of Germantown, uh, which is uh, about eight miles, I mm-hmm. think, outside uh, the then center of um, of the city. Um, and uh, John Penn, the governor, he's the grandson of William Penn, sends out a delegation of ministers from different faiths to talk to them, and then he sends out a de- delegation led by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Franklin persuades the spokesman of the Paxton Boys to write their grievances down. And they submit two documents, a declaration, which was probably written before they got to Germantown, and then a more formally constructed remonstrance um, Mm -hmm. listing their grievances. Now, they do, uh, in one of the grievances, talk about lack of political representation in the West, and Historians have made a big deal about that and talked about them as progenitors of democracy in the revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a theme we could discuss as well. It's true in one sense. Uh, but s- seven of the eight um, grievances in the remonstrances deal with uh, um, Indian affairs, defense, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and, and their, their very grim and dim opinion of Indians. So Franklin persuades them to write it down and to disband. They go back to the frontier, their spokesmen stay, and they present um, the uh, Declaration and the Remonstrance. The Quaker-dominated assembly wants an investigation. Um, they want they want the leaders, the ringleaders who are known of the Paxton Boys, brought into into the uh, city and uh, interrogated. They want a, a commission. Uh, Penn, John Penn says no. Uh, he cites you know, arcane constitutional reasons. He says the Paxton Boys can't be dictating what we do and do not do. Uh, but it's politically, it's quite complicated because the, the Quaker Assembly and the Penn Executive Branch have been at loggerheads for many, many years over many, many issues. But a third force has emerged into Pennsylvania politics by this time, and that is a Presbyterian faction. Uh, the Presbyterians within the city of Philadelphia and in the West are becoming more powerful. And really, you get a, a lineup then of the Anglican uh, proprietary family and the Presbyterians against the Quakers and Benjamin Franklin. Mm-hmm. And the result, instead of um, an actual battle in Philadelphia or a war, is instead a war of words, mm-hmm. uh, a pamphlet war, an extraordinary exchange of uh, over 60 pamphlets and 10 political cartoons where they all go after each other, hell for leather, and mm-hmm. blame, blame one another for the mess. Uh, Franklin has the inspired but ultimately not so inspired idea that the solution to this would be to abolish proprietary government. 
so so far so good. <laughs> but but to <laughs> to place uh, um, to place Pennsylvania under the direct rule of the crown. Yeah. The royal government. Now, of course, it sounds very ironic to us because 12 years later he was yeah. at the forefront of a movement to abolish direct rule by the crown. Any uh, any port in a storm. <laughs> yes, yeah. So there is a consistency because his uh, his target is the same in both cases. It's arcane proprietary privilege. Yeah. It just happens to be the Penn family the first time and monarchy as such the second time. Yeah. <laughs> Right, I see. So, what is the uh, what is the legacy of the? Um, I was going to ask you about the legacy of the of the the Paxson boys and the uh, failure, I guess I should say, or destruction of Penn's experiment for the revolution. But I, I'm I'm more interested in the final few minutes uh, to hear you talk about what the legacy of this is for the Indian groups that were in the area. Long term or 18th century? Well, or 18th century and then long term. Yeah. Yeah, I th- I, I, I'll, I'll try both. I think I think the the first and second question actually are, are connected because mm-hmm. the, the the what happens in the revolution determines the fate of the uh, Indians as well. Um, the Paxton boys go underground after the uh, massacres and the march in Philadelphia. They reemerge uh, on the eve of the revolution and they reemerge as patriots. Um, it's, a, it's an odd and convoluted story, but it's worth touching on. Um, at this time, the, the colony of Connecticut was um, yeah. seeking to, to uh, um, expand its sway uh, by moving westward and by planting uh, a colony uh, uh, actually in northern Pennsylvania. Now, it did that on the basis of its original colonial charter, which had no western boundary. Mm-hmm. It's a sea-to-sea charter, just like Virginia's is and many of the other charters. It extends theoretically from the Atlantic to, to the um, Pacific. Uh, a chunk of land called part of New York is already taken. <laughs> so they leap, uh, leapfrog that and say, okay, well, let's take part of what's Pennsylvania. They approach Lazarus Stewart, a man named Lazarus Stewart, who was the leader of the Paxton Boy uh, expeditions in 1763, and said, look, you still need land. We'll give you land if you work as mercenaries for us against Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Paxton Boys are delighted to do that, and so they get, go up there, they drive out the Pennsylvania settlers, and they secure northern Pennsylvania for Connecticut. Uh, that's right on the eve of the revolution. They start to call themselves patriots, and they're uh, doing battle with the arch-Tory, uh, mm-hmm. Thomas Penn. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the revolution comes. It's a matter really of settling grievances, and, and local grievances again over land, and it involves Indians because in 1778, uh, loyalist forces under General John Butler enter uh, northern Pennsylvania's Wyoming Valley, where... The, the Paxton Boys and the Connecticut um, forces are, and um, the Paxton Boys decide to do battle. They march out to meet them, and they are annihilated. Almost 200 of them are killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called the Wyoming Massacre. That's the end of the Paxton Boys. Um, they died as patriots, mm-hmm. <laughs> fighting on the revolutionary side, the patriot side. They died as they had lived, fighting mm-hmm. Tory, Tories and Indians o- over land. Mm-hmm. Now, Events like that uh, help trigger a, a major concerted American backlash against the Loyalists and the Indians. Remember, six of the um, uh, four of the six nations in the Iroquois Confederacy have allied themselves with the British. So the Americans launch uh, scorched earth campaigns um, 
up through uh, Iroquois country and out into western Pennsylvania. They devastate, uh, destroy villages, devastate everything in sight. Um, in 1783, uh, you have the second piece of Paris, the more familiar one that ends the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. Um, all Indian territory, um, Iroquois territory and other Indians who had allied themselves with the British, um, between the Mississippi and the East Coast, north of Florida, south of Canada, are forfeited by right of conquest mm-hmm. to the new American nation. Mm-hmm. The inhabitants of those lands are never consulted. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the ultimate and, I guess, the sad or, or, or grim uh, um, conclusion of the story where the fate of Native Americans and the impact of the Paxton Boys come together. I think you could say that in that sense, the revolution is, is the Paxton Boy episode writ large. Yeah, um, yeah. And, in that, and it's in that sense that the Paxton Boys actually are progenitors of the revolution, mm-hmm. the hard side of the revolution. There's, there's great irony here because Pennsylvania really is the center of the uh, revolution and the formation of the Constitution, it, it puts into place the most radical experiments in Republican democracy. Uh, but it, all of that rests on the expulsion or annihilation of Indians, just as American freedom in Virginia, in Jefferson's Virginia, rested on the fact of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's the, 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 strong and inescapable conclusion that comes through. I would just uh, say in conclusion that there is a legacy also left, I think, by William Penn. Uh, The scale of the devastation in in Pennsylvania at the end of the 18th century is such that in the 19th and 20th centuries, Pennsylvania, the people of Pennsylvania believed that there were no Indians living there. and that was largely true. There were some who had gone into hiding um, uh, in remote regions. Um, but it's an extreme uh, form of what we call the myth of the vanishing Indian, nonetheless. Yeah, right. Because in, in 1700, where my story more or less begins, the best count we have is that there were about 5,000 Native Americans left. Mm-hmm. There had been many more 100 years earlier. Yeah. If you look at Pennsylvania today, um, there are over 20,000 Pennsylvanians who identify themselves as Native uh-huh. American. Yeah. There are more than that number who claim partial Native mm-hmm. American ancestry. At the same time, Pennsylvania has no state or federal recognition of any tribe. Is that right? And it, huh. and it has no uh, reservation of any kind. Well, shame on them. Well, uh, that, uh, well, I wrote a, an op-ed about this in the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, a few months ago, and uh, that's where William Penn, in, in a way, does come back in. Sometimes, sometimes the past is not relevant to the present, yeah. but the idea, the idea of little commonwealths yeah. uh, peacefully coexisting among us is actually strikingly similar to federal policy sure. on, on, the, on the recognition. There are over 500 uh, um, Indian tribes and nations recognized in the United States today uh, as you could say as little commonwealths existing between state and federal power. It's funny because uh, I was, I was going to say um, we're, you, we've taken up a lot of your time and I, and I really appreciate it and I, I know you have to probably have more, to go. And probably more than things. you can use. No, but, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, but I did, yeah, you know, yeah. this is, no, absolutely. This, this is absolutely fascinating to me and I think that it's fascinating to all Americans. I, I'm a big fan of having um, other people, and I, and I don't mean that in any sort of uh, sort of big O uh, Michel Foucault kind of way. Other people, yeah, yeah. people from yeah. overseas, write our history. Because, oh, sure, sure. Because, yeah. because you, uh, people who are not Americans see everything differently. And I know that every time I talk to, uh, to an American historian, and particularly about the American Revolutionary Era, it's just a long 
process by which I unlearn the things that I learned in high school. I mean, it's incredible how (laughs) if you read books like yours, the scales just fall from your eyes, and and you realize how hard it was to keep your nose and hands clean by our age in that era. It's just it was almost impossible, and these people. You know, they. I mean, I think you put it really well. I mean, the Indians were people, and the the Mennonites were people, and the Quakers were people, and they unfortunately act like people. <laughs> and, you know, that, yeah, with, like, yeah, and as you as you said at the beginning, you know, well, I don't recall exactly how you put it. I mean, the, the road to hell of faith was good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's just very it's very hard to keep your your hands clean here. I have to say though, when I, when I published the piece in the the the, the op-ed in the Philadelphia Inquirer just a couple of months ago. Um, you know, I got about 25 or 30 direct email responses mm-hmm. from people who read it that morning, mm-hmm. and only two of them were negative. One one was one was a crank, um, and the other said, okay, but what's the point? Why are you yeah. telling us this? What are we going to do about it? But I, I, it was really interesting uh, to, to, to get the responses, and I did eventually get one or two responses from Native Amer- Pennsylvanians who are Native Americans mm-hmm. who, who, were, uh, who were really, really... Pleased, and they said what they want. All they want to say is that uh, we still exist. <laughs> right. I mean, I think, and I think yeah. the thing that we need to bear in mind as historians is that you know our job is to tell the story in the most correct way possible. Yeah. And so yeah. That, you know, yeah. and, and that's really what you've done here. I mean, I, I yeah. it's it's uh, you know, I, I think it was George Will or somebody who said that uh, the, the power of myths has nothing to do with their truth. But we're not about myths in what we do. We're about telling the truth. And and this one is uh, pretty uncomfortable. I mean, you, if you're an American and you read this book, you you uh, uh, probably will need to go take a shower after, after <laughs> you're done. I recommend you read it, though. It's extraordinarily yeah, yeah. interesting. I think you've done a, a fantastic job. Anyway, I should tell everybody that uh, we've been talking to Kevin Kenny about his book, Peaceable Kingdom Lost, The Paxton Boys, and The Destruction of William Penn's Holy Experiment. Um, Kevin, thanks very much for being on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Marshall. It's uh, been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Kevin Kenny about his book, Peaceable Kingdom Lost, The Paxton Boys, and the Destruction of William Penn's Holy Experiment. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.